We read the word of the Lord this morning, congregation, as we find it in the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading from John chapter 19. And we'll begin the reading at verse 13 through verse 30. Verses 13 through 30, and our focus will be on what is often called our Lord's third word from the cross. John 19, we begin the reading at verse 13. Let us listen now to this word the Lord speaks to us. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice again verses 26 and 27, where we read, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this morning. 
Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I think of our Lord's so-called seven words from the cross where he speaks, reveals, he is after all our chief prophet and teacher, I'm reminded of a very familiar expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Perhaps you've used it. A picture, boys and girls, is worth a thousand words. I would propose that it's more accurate to say just a few words of our Lord from the cross tells us more than a thousand pictures. I once was at a seminar led by an Englishman by the name of Oz Guinness. I don't know if any of you know Oz Guinness. And he made us do something by way of an exercise early in his presentation. And the exercise was, you may choose either to write in a couple of paragraphs what is on your mind, or perhaps if you prefer, you may draw a picture. And then we can all stare at it and ascertain what it is that the picture represents. His whole point was... When our Lord speaks, our Lord who has words which are words of eternal life from the cross, in the midst of his deepest agony, suffering, humanly speaking, this gross miscarriage of justice under Pilate, the Roman ruler of the people of Israel, Caesar's agent, who had no power but that which was given him, says our Lord, from above, who repeatedly declared the Lord Jesus to be altogether innocent of every charge brought against him. In the midst of our Lord's deepest agony, his third word from the cross, after having said, Father, forgive them, his first word, And having said today to the thief at his side, you will be with me in paradise. Here in the Gospel of John, we're told at this solemn moment, seeing four women, especially his mother and his disciple, Jesus spoke, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother to whom I entrust her provision and care from henceforth to you. Now, you may say to yourself, as you think about this, this is perhaps the most common, the most, dare I say, insignificant, just a little notation like a footnote at the bottom of the page that intrudes almost into what our Lord suffered. But I would suggest to you this morning that as you consider this word with me, that it tells us at least three things about our Lord who isolates himself as all alone, the one and only mediator who by his cross purchases our redemption. Christ, you might say, isolates himself in three ways. First of all, notice by the position that he assigns to his mother by means of this word. Secondly, notice how he isolates himself by the provision that he makes for her. 
And then lastly, notice how he isolates himself, is all alone by the place he takes for himself. We're told in John's Gospel, in the other Gospels, we're told that there was a little company of followers of our Lord Jesus, among whom a number of women. The Apostle John here singles out There are differences among commentators. Some say there are two women mentioned here. Some say three. Some say four. doesn't really matter that much. I judge John to have identified four women. The first, Jesus' mother. The second, his mother's sister. The third, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And the fourth, Mary Magdalene. But at this moment... As they draw near to the cross and witness the agony of our Lord Jesus in the depths of his being crucified and made a mockery of by the soldiers who are parting his garments, there's a surprising word, and it's the word woman. It's the word spoken to our Lord's mother according to the flesh. I find it rather interesting that in the New International Version translation, if you had it in front of you, you would read, Dear woman. I think the translators were trying to perhaps soften the blow of what is a rather officious, in the technical sense, of official, by virtue of his office, Speaking of our Lord Jesus to his mother, what son in the midst of his death throes would address at his bedside his mother as a woman? The words have almost a bit of a jarring sound or effect upon your first hearing them. There's nothing in them that is particularly sentimental. Now, our minds might run to the prophecy of Simeon, recorded in Luke 2, when our Lord was with his parents, according to the flesh, Joseph and Mary, presented in the temple the words of Simeon, the prophecy of Simeon, Simeon to Mary, that a sword would pierce through her soul also. But I think a more likely point of reference for what our Lord is saying here is in the Gospels, Particularly in Matthew chapter 12, you have this rather striking account where the disciples come to Jesus quite excitedly because his mother was coming. And they say to Jesus, behold, here is your mother. And you would expect our Lord at that, on that occasion to receive her gladly and to shoo the disciples out of the room to be in the presence of his mother. But what does Matthew tell us Jesus says? But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Behold, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
And it's rather interesting that the next time we find Mary on the pages of the record told us in the New Testament, where is she to be found? She's in the pew in preparation for the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost to gather with the other disciples, a member like all others of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, related to Christ in no other way than the way in which you and I are related to him, in the way of faith. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. Now you may say, well, what, what really is the significance of that for us? If no one comes near to Jesus, not even his mother, according to fleshly attachments, or relationship. If she is described by our Lord at the cross, not as the Queen of Heaven, as in some portions of the Christian tradition she is entitled, if she is not declared to be a co-redeemer, but one who, like all others, through faith in Jesus Christ, can obtain salvation, how much more for you and me? And if I may be a bit pointed by way of application, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, young people, and even those of you whose heads are crowned with what looks like snow, if this is true of Mary, that she comes to the cross in the same posture and by the same faith that we come to Christ, no one enters the kingdom by hanging on to their mother or father's coattails, by having the right last name, by some kind of association with the right sort of people, like the people gathered here this morning, very respectable as you are. No one comes to the Father but by me, not even Mary. No one finds salvation without, as earlier our Lord taught in the Gospel of John, that new birth by water and the Spirit. Notice the position that he assigns by these words. Incidentally, it's striking to me that there's a long tradition in the church that actually turns what our Lord says here upside down and makes Mary, the mother of the church, the keeper of John the Apostle who represents the church. Now that's the turn the tables entirely upon what really cannot be denied. Our Lord is saying, I go to the cross alone. Under the judgment of God. In the place and in the name of those worthy of such judgment, though innocent, no one is with me. Not even the Father in the felt impression of his love when he cries out from the cross, Why, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? But there's another thing here, and it's this, the provision that our Lord 
by means of this word, makes for his mother. You know that a son in Israel, and our Lord was the true Israel of God. Out of Egypt I call my sons, is the Gospel of Matthew. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The true child, the true Israelite, a son whose mother is widowed in Israel under the fifth commandment was obligated to make provision for his mother. And in the simplest possible way, even the little children, all of us this morning can understand this. Jesus is making arrangements. Can you imagine that? Looking out, not for his own interest, in his moment of deepest agony, he remembers his mother. And you say, well, that's nice. Well, it's not only nice, it makes known to us that he came to do the will of his father and to do it perfectly. Under the first table of the law, and what is the first commandment under the second? Honor your father and your mother. The same apostle who records this writes in his first epistle, How can you love God whom you've not seen if you do not love your brother, and we might insert also your mother, whom you have seen? Our Lord's obedience to the law of God, both active, doing what the law obliged, and as well passive, substituting himself as though he were a sinner, a violator of the fifth commandment, as well as the whole of the law. He was made to be sin, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Can you imagine that? The holy, harmless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who demonstrates even in this word that he spoke to his mother that he was a law keeper. His righteousness was a seamless garment like the tunic that was seamless that they divided among them. One of the striking things about the gospel record of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he was never more offended by the Pharisees than when they found little detours around caring and keeping and loving, providing for their mothers, fathers. It's no accident that James says religion that God regards as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The Pharisees, you know, would have all sorts of fanciful strategies. They would take what was owed in the care and keeping of their mothers and they would declare it Corban. And then they'd parade their piety in the synagogue and say, see, we give it all to the Lord. Meanwhile, neglecting their fathers and mothers. Now, I don't mean to be unkind this morning, brothers and sisters, but is there anyone here this morning who can say, under the law, blameless? Under the fifth commandment, 
never miss an opportunity to visit my parents in the nursing home. Tenderly providing for them in their vulnerable weakness as they grow older. I was a pastor of a church, and I heard often stories from widows and widowers of loneliness, of neglect. I trust it's not so with you, but what is good news for us this morning is such sins are forgiven when we confess them and bring them to the Lord, to this perfect Lamb, who in all the particulars of God's holy law, also in respect to his mother according to the flesh, makes provision for her. The just who dies for the unjust, the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away all of our sins under any of the commandments, including the fifth, and regards us, clothed as we are, by God's gracious giving and imputing the perfect seamless garment of Christ's flawless obedience under the law. But there's one last thing, a third thing, that we're told by means of this word of our Lord at the cross, and it's this. Notice what it means, not for the position that he assigns to his mother or the provision that he makes for her, but notice the place he takes for himself. In the Old Testament, when a priest was called to engage before the altar and in the temple in his ministrations, offering of sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people, the word of the Lord instructs them in Leviticus chapter 21.10 this way, the priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated or appointed to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, and now listen carefully, nor shall he defile himself even for the sake of his mother and father. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, abandon his holy office, nor profane the sanctuary, for the consecration of the anointing oil is upon him. I am the Lord. What's the point? Our Lord, who was anointed and commissioned and by the Father appointed, to be not only our chief prophet, but our only high priest, as well as eternal king, does not abandon his calling for the sake of his mother, is willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, for your sake and for mine. 
No greater love has any man, says the Lord in the Gospel of John, than that he should lay down his life for his friends. You are my friend. I am willing, as a high priest, like no other priest under the Old Testament economy, to give myself entirely and completely to lose everything precious and wonderful, to give it all away in order to resolutely, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord, and I'm prepared to lay it down now for all of my sheep. Those who know me and whom I know, whom no one will ever again be able to snatch a single one of them out of my firm grip and hand. Gives new meaning, doesn't it, to the language of our Lord in the Gospels where he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He's not saying we become worthy in the sense obtaining because we've earned it, but it just will not do. It's entirely incongruous. That's a bad theologian's word. It's inconsistent with owning such a Savior who did all of this for us and say, I'm not going to give him anything in return, as it were. I'm not going to show forth my heartfelt gratitude for all that he has done for me. In view of God's mercy, says the Apostle Paul in Romans, offer, present yourself sincerely and promptly, as Calvin would put it, and thankfully to the Lord for what he did for us when he isolated himself at the cross as the only Savior who could answer to our need. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we cannot begin to imagine the depths of our Lord's suffering. Even this moment where he distances himself from his mother according to the flesh, out of obedience to his calling, in order to give all that was required of him perfectly to obtain our redemption. May we be a people who live out of gratitude and devotion, thankful, offering ourselves to him for all that he's done for us. We pray in Jesus' name.